Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Adam Parker, who is studying for his PhD part-time at the Open University, while also working for Yorkshire Museums, and has also recently begun working as a fines liaison officer for the Portable Antiquity Scheme. So the topic of Adam's PhD is magic in Roman Britain. I guess the idea of magic in the Roman world is something that a lot of people wouldn't be that familiar with. As Adam says in this episode, he went back about 20, 30 years the people that were studying this phenomenon were considered a bit of a loony fringe in Roman archaeology. However, in more recent years, with the likes of Adam and others, it's now becoming a much more popular topic of study, although, as he says, he's more than happy to keep the title of loony fringe. In this episode, Adam discusses difficulties in defining magic and some of the things he's been looking at during the course of the PhD, including the many, many phallic images he's catalogued, which leads to the first, but perhaps not the last, use of the phrase globular testes on the podcast. He also chats about how experimental archaeology is useful in understanding how magical items worked, and he also talks about how his time in museums has influenced the way he goes about sharing his work. I can attest to the fact that he is a very good presenter at conferences, partly through the fact that he brings stuff along to hand around that people can feel, touch, and adds another level of experience. Also, just the fact that he has really good GIF use, which I openly admit that I have on numerous occasions plagiarised. Additionally, we also talk about his experience working in museums more generally, how he went against the grain and decided not to become a fifth-generation teacher, and how we both took the same MA, although not at the same time, one year out, and the impact that this had on us. Also, just a quick reminder, if you're in London at any point in the next couple of months, do check out the Sounds of Roman Egypt exhibition at the Petrie Museum in UCL, which is part of Coffee and Circus's alumni, Joe Stoner and Ellen Swift's project on late Roman Egypt, and you can actually go back in the archive of the podcast and listen to them talking about it. Finally, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast via Spotify and iTunes, where you can also rate and review if you want to give me some love. So now, as always, thank you very much for joining me, and on to the show. Just, just taking on uh, another new job. So I now have three jobs. Oh, really? Which museum is it in York you work, work for? Oh, or do you still work for? Or am I a bit outdated? <laughs> no, that, that's true. I work for the Yorkshire Museum, where I have done since 2010. I'm the assistant curator of archaeology. So I do that three days a week. Um, the other two days a week, I do my PhD. And I've now just taken on an extra day a week being a, a co-finance liaison officer for the PAS. Oh, nice. Um, so my colleague Becky in the museum, she is the, the flow for North and East Yorkshire. And this is, so she's she's backfilling somebody else for a day a week to do something slightly different because you want to do. So I'm backfilling her a day a week. So I'm now filling, I'm now trying to put six days into five days. Yeah. So it's, 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 2019 is going to fly by, I think. Yeah. <laughs> the life of a early career person, eh? He never... Never well, seem to have to put it all in, juggle everything at the same time. How's the how's the PhD going at the moment? So, well, I suppose actually to begin, actually, with if you want to explain a little bit what the the PhD is about, because you're kind of, I suppose, the the magic man, really. You've had the the recent the publication with Stuart as well, material approaches to magic, the or Roman magic, the track volume. Yeah. But yeah, if you want to explain a little bit about what your PhD is, and also I suppose 
what about what you mean by magic in the Roman world? I actually <laughs> just I know I know because that's a very loaded question because I recently or last term I I was teaching at Kent the module on Roman Britain and for the lecture on religion I did go off on a little bit of tangent but to talk about magic uh, just to kind of introduce it as kind of a a theme you might say or a subject that people might want to look at. But I was looking through your your recent volume. And obviously, as you discuss in there to begin with, how you actually define magic is, is very, very difficult. And a lot of people have different approaches in how they define it. But yeah, if you want to just uh, explain a little bit about what your what your PhD is and, and what you mean by magic. Sure. Well, I mean, what is magic is, uh, well, how long have you got? <laughs> We, we we could enter into a seminar, you know, if you like. <laughs> I'll try and avoid that. We'll keep it. I'll keep it. I'll keep it brief. My PhD is with the Open University. It's part time. Um, I've just finished. Just clocked over my third year part time. Three more to go. It's on the archaeology of magic in Roman Britain. So the purpose of the PhD is to gather together a broad range of material culture that may be regarded as having a magical sort of purpose function. So this is amulets, charms, curses, sort of non-contentious magical things, if you like, um, and then pile them all in a big database and then archaeologize them once I've finished the database. Uh, and this should be able to draw out some nuance about what's going on, where, why, who's doing it, what sort of context these things are coming in, do these things coexist together. So I've got 20 or so different object types and currently nearly 2,000 objects. So we've got a, got a pretty good data set on the go at the minute. But that is, that is work in progress. What I mean by magic is, <laughs> in fact, chapter one of the PhD. <laughs> that, that, was, that was day one of my PhD. Was, uh, my tutor said, okay, so what is magic? Go write that, come back to us in a couple of months. And we did that. It's a very, it's a complicated, idea and as you suggest you need to basically commit to being on some side of an argument uh, this argument is unending um, and primarily based on semantics about how it relates to religion because um, religion is something that you can quite easily define uh, the big debate whether magic is something that actually exists or if it's just a useful modern term that we use anachronistically to describe something that wasn't functionally differentiated in the ancient world. That makes sense. But I, um, if I have to come down on one side or the other, I'm probably a proponent of the idea that magic does function slightly different to religion. And in that case, you can uh, look at it as a, as a, as a unique entity. Um, religion does slightly different things. Magic, you end up interacting with supernatural powers in different ways basically what, what it fundamentally boils down to is religion is you have to ask some divine power for help whereas magic is you have the mechanisms to take that power yourself if i had to boil it down to its very bare bones that's probably why i end up standing on it in, in the introduction to the book that you mentioned we, we say that there are lots of different ways that you can try and approach this uh, we had uh, the, the various authors in that. We didn't say, this is what we think magic is. Go and use that because Stuart and I have probably slightly disagree on that. Um, I am a more of a sort of a, a, a functionalist in, in, in how it works. And Stuart probably comes down more on the idea that 
it's uh, a much more ephemeral idea that would be more closely linked to religion. That might speak more of the, the different parts of magic that we look at and everything else. But, I mean, if we can't agree wholeheartedly as editors of the volume, it would have been unfair to get everybody else to try and do that. But it's quite a reflexive process trying to trying to get into the definitions of what magic might be. I, I keep a, a blog as a PhD student, uh, romanmagic.wordpress.com, shameless plug. Um, in which I've been collecting different definitions of magic. And I think I've got 25 or something so far from various different published resources. Yeah, so there's no right or wrong way to necessarily do it. Do you think there ever will be, as the, I suppose you might say, the kind of area of research develops, do you think there ever will be a more unified understanding of what magic is or do you think it will always be one of those things that will be very fluid in its interpretation because i suppose in some respects that's not necessarily a bad thing i imagine it's quite a confusing thing at times but i mean even as you were saying with you and Stuart, it kinds of difficulties that particularly when you're co-editing a book that you're going to have different ideas about what it means but on the flip side of things i can imagine that's also quite nice and that you probably get some very good stimulating conversation about it out of having those differences yeah i think where it'll end up Going, my general feeling is that at the moment we're in a sort of a theoretical phase where magic's getting a lot of attention. That might be just be my own personal experience of it. Um, and you know, there's been several conferences about magic turning up recently. Some more literature on uh, edited volumes and collations of text and new um, databases material coming to the fore. So uh, I, I suspect that magic is getting more attention now. Whether that lasts. I'm not sure. Perhaps in 30 years' time, we've all that we've done is we've fundamentally uh, like described that magic is not an appropriate way for describing these features of the ancient world, and what we should be going back to is religion or a third option or a fourth option. It has changed in the last, I mean, two centuries. We probably started with religion. We, I mean, definitely started with religion as this, science as this, magic as this, and they were quite fine. Uh, finite definitions of it in the early 20th century that got a little bit more muddied and that argument hasn't really finished and um, certainly we're trying to separate it into different camps i'm quite happy that there is a sort of a an ongoing interest in in the study of ancient magic i mean utterly selfishly it seems to be a great time to be <laughs> trying to be involved in it and um, trying to push forward a research agenda that it is something that we can look at yeah, because uh, to my understanding, at least anyway, it is a fairly newish topic in in regards to the Roman world. Am I right in saying that? Uh, it's not saying that I suppose that I suppose in a more kind of popular image of the Roman world, magic is not a term that crops up so much. As you say, most people obviously know a lot about Roman religion or even if you speak to somebody on the street, if you talk about the Roman world and, and religion, I don't know, maybe they can name a couple of gods or, or something. But the idea of magic, I suppose, is something that in the study of the Roman world is not something that's been around so much before. I mean, even when I brought it up with the the students when I was doing the lecture, they seemed a bit surprised. They didn't quite, they, they didn't really expect the idea of like somebody talking about magic when they were doing a course on, on Roman Britain. But is that is that just something that is, is it kind of just been a bit under the radar or is it really something that's just grown quite considerably in just re, in quite recent times? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, it's, I, I see sort of the real genesis of the study of sort of at least the material nature of Roman magic coming from Ralph Merrifield and um, the, the Archaeology of Ritual Magic, a book he published in 1987. He was the curator at the Museum of London 
And there's a wonderful phrase in the start of that book that I bring up at every opportunity. And when he's introducing the, the subject that says, actually, we should be looking at these the, these rituals um, in interesting and in new ways because these aren't what we what they think we are. We should be really, really absolutely hammering. We should be hammering home at these individual practices at these individual points in time to try and find out what's going on because there's something really interesting here. He says there was a fear of doing so, particularly in the 80s and the sort of when we're in the, uh, the processual, um, the new archaeology theoretical phase. He said there's a fear of doing it for being associated associated with the loony fringe of archaeology, mm. which is wonderful because I've been trying to reappropriate that term for <laughs> <laughs> you know, basically since I first read it nearly 10 years ago now. Um, yeah, we are the loony fringe, but we're getting mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to make that crossover and then you won't be cool anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so what, um, I mean, can you talk about a little bit at the moment about any, any kind of, I might, you might say interesting things that have come out of looking at the PhD. Obviously, I suppose you don't want to give out too much away because you're still in the process of doing it, but obviously you have published some stuff. So, I mean, what, what stuff that you have, you actually put out there? Like what are some of the kind of the interesting things that you found? I mean, certainly I know, I know for one thing, having seen you do several conference papers that you have quite the large collection of phallic images now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which in itself, I, I knew going into it that, that, um, phallic and well, more broadly sexual imagery would be a, a fairly key component of the data set. That particularly is one object type that is that has historically often been associated with magic. It's often called an amulet, phallic amulets. Seem to seem to be something that exists in public consciousness as well as in academic literature. And you'll see them in museums and um, books all over the place, as this is what Romans used to protect themselves. Um, I when I started looking into it, there was absolutely no nuance in that description of it, it's very, very apparent straight away, looking at kind of gathering a data set of them um, that there could be uh, a fairly clear typology within it. If we want to create a typology, they, they aren't, there isn't one phallic amulet. There are lots of different types. So these are different sizes, different shapes. Um, some are realistic, some are stylistic, some are pointing in different directions. Um, we'll come back to that. Uh, they come in different materials. Um, some of them are, um, some, some of them are depicted as erect. Some of them are depicted as flaccid. And like clearly, all these different things can be doing exactly the same thing for the four centuries of Roman Britain when I'm when I'm looking at it. And I don't think that's going to be the case. Exactly whether I can actually hammer down into saying this version it's slightly curved they were worn by men in the third century and these ones were worn by children in the first century it might not be um quite that explicit though i would love for that to be the case uh, i think at, at least at least on, on the on the phallic imagery you'll be able to try and suggest that there are a lot more differences in this specific subset of material culture that we haven't really looked at before with the directionality, directionality, I think, is a really interesting thing. There's an incredible paper by um, an academic called uh, Alyssa Whitmore in American Archaeological Association 2018 book on dress, I think, in the ancient world. And she commissioned a, a reconstruction of a phallic pendant from Pierce Bridge, made her boyfriend wear it for a couple of months mm. and recorded the different ways in which it moved while he was doing different activities. Okay. And this is this is brilliant. Um, it, the paper and the, the reconstructed archaeology shows that the shape of the pendant of this specific pendant 
this one had quite globular testes, so it had quite a strong base. Um, but they meant that even if you started running up and down, it, it bounced around, but it always kept facing forward. Um, it, if it is designed to be an amulet, our chap Ralph Merrifield that I mentioned before, he is a my other favourite quote of him is he describes uh, Roman phallic images as a kind of lightning conductor for bad luck. So if you put those two ideas together, that it's always these things are facing outwards, they're facing towards the danger that you as a person may be travelling to in the ancient world, um, and that kind of detail is hopefully something that I'll be able to draw out of um, the PhD research. I mean, you know, phallic objects are one of as I say, nearly 20 different object types that I'm looking at, they're not all doing the same things, they're not all doing, they're not all appearing at the same times or in the same places. But there's certainly going to be a lot of interest, I think, that I can, that I can derive from some of that. Some of it I'd worked on a little bit before. Uh, for example, there are pendants in Whitby Jet, which depict Medusas. There are 10, possibly 11 of them now, actually, in Roman Britain. And they, where they can associate them with individuals, they are all with young adult females in inhumations, in lead coffins, in the early third, uh, sort of, sorry, from the third to early fourth centuries AD, and in four or five places where you find them in, them in those places, they're strongly associated with other jet objects that you don't find in other towns or cities around around the northwestern provinces. So there's some really interesting details that you can try and draw out when you bring it all together. And there'll be lots more of that. I've been producing. I've started playing with producing some um, distribution maps, heat maps now, and that in itself is interesting to try and just put some dots on a map to see. Okay, this is where these things are have derived from. What meaning or lack of meaning can we try and uh, interpret from these these little sort of spatial reconstructions? Yeah, lots to be getting on with. Yeah, no, it's really it's a fascinating subject. I suggested it to one of my extended essay students the yeah, other week who, I don't know if she's contacted you yet. I did mention to do so, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, I, I just, cause yeah. it's a really kind of o- open field, I suppose, in many respects that there is a lot, yeah, yeah, to be, absolutely. a lot to be explored. Just, just a very, very quick note. I don't suppose any of the phallic images come in jet at all. Is jet just purely the the kind of associations that you said previously or do you actually get any phallic images in jet at all there aren't any phallic images in jet that i am aware of uh jet is a really interesting material on its own because it has some inherent properties that make it sort of amuletically powerful jet is it's a type of jurassic coal that you find outcropping in the north sea and it basically washes up on the North North Yorkshire shore and you collect it by beach combing. It just washes up on its own in little black pebbles. It is basically coal, but it's quite hard coal. Not as hard as anthracite, but quite hard, hard enough for you to be able to carve and do things with it. Uh, so jet is, so it's quite hard to get hold of. So you can't just go and, I'm going to go out and look for some jet somewhere, anywhere and find it. You have to be in this very specific place. And at high and low tide, so there's a, there's, you know, there's a seasonality and a temporality to finding it. Most importantly, jet is black as the jewellery, which in itself is quite unusual, and electrostatic. So if you rub jet enough, it gets a very light electro- electrostatic charge. So it attracts cloth fibres or maybe hair. And if you're in the third century, that undoubtedly would blow your mind, which is one of the reasons that it seems to be uh, associated with several different types of amulets. I can't account for why there aren't phallic things made out of it. It's an interesting question. I don't have an answer for it. There are phallic things made out of amber, which is often allied with jet, because it basically because amber is also electrostatic. 
you get lots of amber in the first and second century in the northwest and then that's sort of in britain and then that seems to be sort of replaced by jet in the third and fourth century or all those two are just coincidentally happening at those two times but they're often allied as interesting natural materials that are electrostatic but you get them in uh, an amber and not in jet Hmm. one of the things i mean that 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 reminds me of though when you're talking about the jet because you i've seen you present a number of time at conferences i'll go out on a limb and say i think you're one of the best people i've ever seen present at a conference wow. uh, yeah <laughs> no, i mean you are praise indeed don't you? Uh, i don't i don't i think a number of people would agree with that actually i think it's you know obviously you go to a conference and you know your main you, obviously high on your priority list is to see stuff that's associated directly with what you're studying yeah. but particularly if you're looking at the conference list and you're like, okay, so there's nothing here that directly relates to my research. So I'm kind of free to pick and choose where I, I want to go. If your name's listed, you're almost certainly going to be where I'm going to go because you, you do very entertaining presentations. You're also, I notice somebody that tends to bring stuff along to, to hand around. Try to. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's very important in general in archaeology. You know, obviously, archaeology is very tangible, and I think sometimes I find that I try to do that in things like lectures and seminars as well. Like I try to get hold of materials to give people something to touch and feel, and it gives a much better, yeah, it just builds a better connection with what you're talking about rather than just simply just showing slides of it all the time or talking about it. But I was wondering because obviously we mentioned at the start you you've been working in uh, museums for a number of years as well. Is the is the kind of the way you present? I mean, also as well, I should probably note you have excellent GIF use as well. And I did use when I talked about magic in the in the lecture last term. I used the Sheila Booth magic GIF, which I I, admit I stole from you. But um, is your way of kind of presenting in that regard? Do you take that from your time museums? I mean, obviously, there's a kind of just personality element there. But I just mean in terms of the way you present. I suppose this is more widely about how you present your research to. A wider audience because you as you said earlier you have your blog as well and i know you're quite engaged with just you know promoting stuff online so i was just wondering like where, what your kind of i suppose your thoughts and feelings are on yeah how you kind of share your share your research and your work and how you think best ways of going about that first and foremost i appreciate the gift the you know the gift use doesn't always land. Or no, it's, it's a risk. It's a risk for you. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I was at a cognitive archaeology conference talking about something, and I had a slide up of lots of different animals. I was talking about PS2 pendants, and as a type of amulet used in Roman um, childhood, and they come from all these different animals in Britain. And I used the absolute units one from from the Museum of English Rural Life as my sheep, and nothing. Must have been the wrong audience, so I, you know I'll have to bank that one and try and get it in later on. I think that probably just derives from you know I'm not a particularly serious person. I think academic conferences can be really, really tedious at times. Um, particularly, you know, you want to be interested in the research, but you also need to be engaging as a researcher uh, to try and get people into it. So I, I'm always quite try to present in a fairly light-hearted way, you know, throw some jokes into it, put some interesting imagery up on the board and having the objects. I, I think it probably does derive from my museum experience, sort of working with material culture. That was something that I was interested in as an undergraduate and as a postgraduate, playing with objects. It is, as I still believe now, it's absolutely the best way to learn about just all of archaeology, not even the ancient world, just having seen the real thing in front of you and been able to 
experience it in three dimensions, you know, haptically and uh, visually, is a much more powerful learning tool than, as you say, 2D slides or just you know having it written down in descriptive terms. That, I mean, that is probably the core of what we do is as, as a museum archaeologist you your your sell to the world is we've got the real stuff come and look at the real stuff so we do talks in the museum fairly regularly uh, often lunchtime talks and whoever wants to turn up turns up it's usually to between 10 and 20 people there is a group of regulars that come and that's fine so you know you're quite used to the people who are who you're talking to and we pick a subject talk about it for 30 minutes and bring objects along and try and engage people with those objects because particular i mean there is a an issue with museums is that the stuff that you see on display will represent a tiny fraction of what the museum collection holds you know there's one two five percent maybe if you're lucky will be on display the rest of it will be in stores hidden in drawers in cupboards in storerooms in boxes that have never been looked at in half a century or even longer and is such a valuable resource of that we you know that's important to try and get out into the world in museums in particular, I think that's important because it's quite often the people who are coming into the museum who, in a technical sense, actually own the materials. You know, if it's a county museum, it's been paid for by their council taxes. That is necessarily true of the museum I work in, but the you know the material is, in a very technical way, owned by the people of York. So, yeah, come in and look at the objects. I will show you why they're interesting. I try and draw that into my academic research as well. Just next to me behind my desk, I've got a, a little selection of amulets that I've been playing with. Uh, some of them I've made, some of them I've bought. Uh, really getting interested in the idea of sort of experimental archaeologies in a, a, as a way of critically looking at ancient magic material culture. It's a sort of where all these things come together in the centre of the Venn diagram of museums, research, personal interests. And yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting to be able to, I mentioned uh, Alyssa's paper about the chap wearing the phallic pendant, because it's not until you do it, you will find out that it's going to react in certain ways to certain situations. I don't know if you're at that track paper where I had lots of the beetle wings that I was passing around. Yeah, the, the bright iridescent green things. I was talking about how they may have been used as, I was talking about the, the use of beetle parts because there's some spurious references and Pliny and a few other places have them being used as amulets for medicinal purposes and you could read that and think oh fine but to be able to interpret that object I need to understand what a beetle is in that case I've bought loads of these beetle wings that they use in jewellery making off of Etsy got them shipped from Thailand where they're all where they're all where they're all fairly humanely produced and just pass them around. I think I bought enough so everybody in the conference could have two, one of which I want them to just to play with, and the other one I wanted to all try and break to find out that there are certain ways in which it's really easy to do so and certain ways in which it's quite hard to do so. You know, just as, as a representative point of playing with the material is always going to be a valuable way of trying to understand it. I will probably be bringing something along to my track presentation this year as well. So... I'm, I'm glad it comes <laughs> with expectations. Oh yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's. You're always guaranteed a good Adam Parker paper. Um, <laughs> the, yeah. I mean, just very quickly, what you were saying about experimental archaeology, though. No, I think that's that's absolutely true. I think understanding, particularly the kind of from a tangible perspective, how this stuff works, 
rather than simply, as you say, reading in the text and being like, oh, that's how that worked. Because obviously in practice, you know, what worked for Pliny doesn't necessarily work for somebody else. And I suppose sometimes what Pliny says and what Pliny did aren't necessarily the same thing as well. You must have went to the London Mithraeum. Oh, yes, I have on, on several occasions now. <laughs> as a case in point, so it's incredible. I thought it was a great space. Um, yeah, the kind of the whole experience thing part of it is just, yeah, I, they've done a really good job there. I mean, it's quite obviously quite unusual, the situation they found themselves in with Bloomberg being so supportive of the whole thing. But yeah, no, it's absolutely, it's incredible what they've done there. Yeah, I knew some people who worked on that project and that, that, that case at the start of it, and it's a three metre by three metre single sheet of glass in the museum case. And, you know, with my curator hat on, I'm like, you are never opening that case ever again. <laughs> Not without a lot of money, a lot of time, a lot of equipment, but, you know, Bloomberg paid for it, that's fine. Yeah. I thought that was great downstairs when they, they filled up with smoke and used shafts of light to be able to depict walls to create a sort of volumetric space. Yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, it's really, I thought you might just say it's really modern as well. I know it's probably yeah. a slightly weird way of putting it, but it, it did feel very, it felt very slick. And, and I mean that in a good way because... I mean, I was talking to, and this actually kind of links what I was going to say about museums. Last week on the podcast, I had our PhD student, Carl, who's looking at identity in museums, particularly to do with the Roman period. Okay. We were talking about museums in general, and obviously, and particularly in recent years, museums have been facing a lot of cuts. And, well, I mentioned about, you know, in some respects, I suppose particularly when you're in the profession in some regard, you you're going into a museum that hasn't obviously had much love and care for a few decades, yeah, right. uh, it's quite a depressing feeling <laughs> when it's like really old mannequins and, you know, a really beige colour scheme and you're just like, oh, this could be a lot more interesting than than the way it's presented. I was, I was just wondering, like, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, working in museums, like, how, how are you finding the kind of current climate of of working in museums i mean are you guys kind of a bit under the cosh in terms of let's say other museums have yeah. faced problems or is it you know are you are you pretty steady at the moment how's it going in that regard i mean we a uh, york museums trust is pretty steady away because we are a we have the collections in private trust so we're not directly administered by the city council north york council which gives you certain freedoms in in, in sort of how you operate you ultimately have to uh, report back to them but it allows us to be you know the, the the industry specialists and we know how to run museums so we'll run the museum rather than having a reporting back to you know elected government officials and various other things who who will have different agendas i absolutely get it it's the you know the why there are so many museums that as you say look a bit unloved it's not a cheap thing to be able to do. I mean, especially if your museum entry is going to be free, which a lot of people expect it to be, perhaps in Britain. It's quite difficult to be able to square that circle of where's your revenue coming from and how you've been able to best display and exhibit your material to the public to to, to keep them engaged in it. As a museum, you know, York Museums Trust, we're doing quite well. Um, we have been a trust since 2002 so we're, we're steaming towards the 20th anniversary of, of, of being a museum's trust which is makes us quite old as, as a trust if nothing else it means we're an ind uh, our ind individual sites are charities 
um, and we can access different funding streams. We get money from Arts Council England and the, the, all the venues are now ticketed um, and use gift aid and things like that to try and get around it. It's never at any point felt entirely comfortable financially. You know, there have been periods of periods of cuts that I've even been through, been in museums and I'm in my just gone over eight years now in museums and we've seen cuts uh, and then growth later on, it comes in waves. It's a very complicated problem to be able to try and deal with because we want museums and we want this material to be publicly available and publicly accessible, but ultimately it's going to cost money to be able to do that. You know, as I mentioned as well, quite a lot of the material isn't public facing. There's a lot of it that's hidden behind the scenes. There'll probably be more problems behind the scenes than that you can see that's seen the stuff in the front of the museum because there's been a turnover of staff or there's not enough people to be able to do the work that's really required to work on the collection. It's, I think there's, you know, there's, this seems to be, um, I think, uh, perhaps, yeah, certainly my, my, my personal, personal idea, personal opinion that the industry seems to be picking up. Um, I've certainly seen more jobs for curatorial staff uh, advertised just generally in the museum world. Um, and there's, I've seen lots of internships and things rising. I think both of these two are, are very, very valuable assets. It's a bit of a, it can be a bit of a nightmare to get into museums. Uh, you need your entry level job. You need that first step in the door. And once you've got that one, you'd probably be all right. But it's, you know, there are so many, we get sent so many CVs by students thinking, can we come work to you for free? Uh, have you got any work going, got any project work? Um, because you need to be able to get into the door before you can continue on that career path. Well, that sounds a bit dark, doesn't it? It's all, <laughs> it's all a bit depressing. Uh, so there's times we live in, I'm afraid, but hopefully these things go around in cycles. So yeah, as you say, it's starting to pick up again. So hopefully so, in the coming years, it will look, start to look a, more, a lot more positive again. But I mean, yeah, I mean, you were talking about the London Mithraeum and that was a that's a great example of somebody taking archaeology and presenting it in a very modern fashion. I mean, as we say, it's an unusual situation with, you know, a billion dollar company behind it which is you know, you're not going to get that often but you know it does it shows as well though that there's the appetite there for it's it that people people want to come and look at that those kind of things and that you know that people are still very much engaged with it i mean i think that's always at least one of the benefits that we have in the world of archaeology that the general public will never lose interest in it i think there's always going to be a strong appetite across the board for people to engage in archaeology whether that's through museums or volunteering at archaeological sites you know, doing a bit of digging themselves or you know even just people watching stuff on tv there's always that strong appetite there which yeah keeps keeps us going keeps us alive it's a, a museum is never really finished so even though you know you do your exhibition it looks really smart it doesn't get done for 20 15 20 years it starts to look a little bit tired things fall apart you know um technology moves on and in design and fashion move on so it's all when you work in the museums you're always trying to keep up with it and it's and on a positive note it's quite an exciting time to be working in museums when we're now starting to see the really interesting super high tech stuff that's filtering through into us um in the Oxford museum we've got a a, a 3d um experience when you feed a giant dinosaur so you put the headset wow. on 
<laughs> and you've got the, the things on it and you have a little controller and there's a um, member of the visitor experience team there to to explain <laughs> what the hell's going on. But it's really immersive and it's really incredible kind of view. And you you look around and the whole landscape moves and you just suddenly lose all sense of space and you start wandering and you smash into the barrier because I want to go see the dinosaur. <laughs> And then you hold, you pick up a branch and you hold you hold it out and the dinosaur comes down and then you can wander underneath them and chase them with the branch. It's just that sort of stuff. It's really incredible and it's something that people remember. It's something that people get engaged with, and it's really a kind of the forefront of new ways of trying to interpret this information. Music really isn't ever finished. You can always try and find new strategies of trying to um, to 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 access new ways of you know experiencing it, interpreting it, and accessing new audiences that are going to be associated with it as well. Yeah. <laughs> just 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 as to think about it, I gave a similar talk to some um, master's students on the changes we made to the museum last 10 years, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> One of the things I said to them, we get the two of the most common complaints that we get in the museum are there's too much text and there's not enough text. <laughs> which <laughs> Which, which is a great a great way of representing the spectrum of people <laughs> that you have to try and engage with and try and try and do something interesting with. Uh, hopefully, technology, new technologies and emergent technologies will be uh, a wonderful way of doing that. And I think there's there's real value for really recent modern archaeological theory to to feed into that as well. Three D printing has become quite popular in in museums. Um, which derives from experimental archaeologies and digital archaeologies. And there's always been a, a, a little element of sort of sensory archaeologies in museum. There's always smelly stuff, isn't there, as an interactive? You know, what, what does the pot smell like? What does the garum smell like? And I think the the, the way that sensory archaeologies now are really becoming an, an emergent field, that could have a really valuable impact further down the line into into the public domain once it gets out of the academic world and we start applying it in a meaningful way yeah the, the possibilities are endless it's, it's crazy <laughs> to think that that i think those kind of vr experiences the technology required for it that the actual apparatus that stuff is going to get smaller and smaller and cheaper portable and it's going to be just easier i mean if you just look at computer games in general and how far they've come along in the space of not too long a time you know last 10 yeah. 20 odd years i mean that that kind of stuff the the virtual reality stuff is really i think gonna always going to bring about some big changes to the way as you say that the past is or people interact with the past but well talking about the past actually to jump in a time machine and go backwards so <laughs> Take me, take me back to the start, though. What was it that drew you to archaeology? What what set you off on this road, and how did you get to the point now where you're, where you're doing the PhD? You're working in a museum. I was. I've always been interested in history. That there seems to be a thing that I've had just just implicitly, and I'm sure everybody you speak to has probably had the same experience <laughs> in the podcast. Uh, I always enjoyed doing history particularly in schools, you know, I've, I've had all the horrible histories, as everybody did. I got to meet Terry Deary once. He signed my copy of The v Vicious Vikings. Oh, really? Oh, damn. I'd love to meet Terry Deary, wonder. <laughs> that was, you know, highlight of my childhood. <laughs> and moving that through into secondary school, I was, you know, I was interested in history and I always find it quite straightforward to do, so I've understood it. When I got to 
when I when I got to college, that's where it really really sort of kicked off at A levels. When I did history and classical civilizations as an A level in um, Durham Sixth Form Centre, and do, doing classical civilizations tapped into just an, a vague interest that I had in the ancient world, and sort of really, you know, started to fan those flames a little bit, and. I think that was that was sort of the changing moment for me. Uh, up until that point, I'd always assumed that I was going to be a teacher because I come from a family of teachers. Um, I'm not a te- I'm not a teacher in the classical in in, in, a, in, a, in the normal sense. My my older brother is a fifth generation teacher, which is just ridiculous. Up until that point, I'd always thought I was going to be a teacher, and when I started studying ancient history properly, I was like, hmm, maybe I'll be an ancient historian instead. This is great fun. I was always engaged with architecture and religion in, in, in both of those two sort of courses. And I was going to do ancient history at university as a pure subject. At the time, I was the, the, the girl I was dating, we both decided to take slightly different degree courses uh, so we could go to the same university. Obviously, that didn't work out. You can tell from the <laughs> from the tone of this and you know much to the better but so i ended up taking archaeology with ancient history and quickly discovered that the archaeology was way more fun than the ancient history absolutely just got bitten by that bug i love the ancient history sort of the interest in the ancient world but the archaeology brought it alive it taps into this idea that i'm still interested in now and in, you know you get to hold bits of the past and it's really really cool I, saw, I became a bit disassociated with the sort of the, the the Greek and Hellenistic history, which I was more interested in up to that point, and became more interested in particularly British prehistory and the archaeology of Britain, particularly because I could go out and see it quite easily. That might have scuppered me slightly because you know, well, people like yourselves go off and do wonderful excavations in <laughs> interesting international places. I was digging on Hadrian's Wall. Well, and, I mean, still. Places better, so, uh, British places. <laughs> <laughs> not the sunny Mediterranean, which is what I should have done. Funny enough, actually, that echoes um, uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast when I had Patty Baker on. Patty yeah. was saying that she went to to Newcastle and spent time digging at Hadrian's Wall. But yeah, she was she she was saying how she was like she looked at other people going off to the Mediterranean, and she was like, uh, "That could be me," but no. <laughs> Hadrian's Wall was the place to go, and I mean, well, you know, few places can compare to Hadrian's Wall. Maybe climate-wise, other places are better, but even still. But by the time I'd finished that that undergraduate degree, I mean, it was I was I want to be an archaeologist is what that had come down to. I wasn't. I knew I wasn't finished with my interest in Roman archaeology, particularly. You can take electives. It was at the University of Leicester, and I tried to tailor as many of them to Roman period and religion or military stuff as possible then so i did a i went tacked on a postgrad straight onto my undergraduate degree and in the degree course was called rome and its neighbors um i'm not sure if it still runs under that name no it doesn't anymore i know it well because what year did you do that what year were you rome and its neighbors oh yeah i was 20 2009 2010 Oh, so, you know, I was the year after you, same master, but the year later. Now, I think I should have written this down. I was listening to a couple of your other podcasts. I was like, oh, yeah, did that. I, you were at a lesson. Um, 
I think uh, I think it still runs, but I think it's just like runs now as archaeology. I always did find later on when I went to put that on a CV, I was like, I don't know if that really explains what it actually is. No, I've, <laughs> I've, just, have you ever lied and just put Roman archaeology before? <laughs> because it, that makes that's a better description of what that degree course was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, I loved it though. I thought that MA was really that for me was a big step up. I did my yeah. at Reading, which in itself is like a big you know roman archaeology uni but i mean less i think it was more also to do with the fact i don't know how many people did it in your year but in our year there was only seven or eight of us so you know that kind of shift to being part of a really small group and yeah. having to take the responsibility to to contribute to that really kind of pushed me to i suppose you might say up my game but also as well i mean it really gave me a new appreciation for the for the subject as well we probably had a very similar track from for, for very similar experience there. And um, there was five of them in my course. Everybody was slightly older than me, but it was, I, I quite enjoyed it. So there's, there was a Brit, a Canadian, American, a German, and, uh, and, uh, and a Dutch fella. And then having all these people from interesting different places and different backgrounds, all coming at the Roman empire from a slightly different way. It was just, it was transformational. Um, and especially, you know, the step up getting pushed to do better research is ultimately how I've ended up where I am now. And um, sort of it really fired my interest in material culture. And my my postgrad, my MA thesis was on magic and identity in Roman Britain. Okay. So I think if you look deep enough into my current PhD project, there will be a fossilized proto thesis at the bottom of there somewhere, which I can. Uh, date back to my, my 2010 master's thesis. Um, some parts of it sort of informed at least my applications and wanting to build on that idea. Within yeah, it. it was very similar for me, actually, because my MA thesis at Leicester was on cults in the, the port of Ostia, of which Mithras was. Yeah, of course. So that's that's kind of where the, the origination of my own, yeah, my PhD came from as well, actually. So did you, when you finished the master's, did you decide after that that you wanted to go do a, a PhD on magic or did you take a bit of time out to sort of think about it and think about where you wanted to go next? Uh, when I finished my, my master's course, I moved back in with my parents, signed on the dole and started volunteering for three months, <laughs> which was a very depressing time. But it, I started volunteering with... Uh, the Bowes Museum and with the Portland Antiquity Scheme in Durham. It's gone full circle with that now. And just to try and get some sort of real object experience, because what I wanted to do, I assumed I was going to go into field archaeology and trying to get into small find stuff through that track, that kind of route. I'd always toyed with the idea of wanting to do a PhD. When I finished my master's, I didn't think I was good enough to do it. Finished with a finished with a merit, didn't you know? It's often a, you need to have a distinction. You need to have absolutely aced everything. To I got that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, particularly when you're applying for funding sources, a lot yeah. of them won't look at you without having a distinction at masters, and you know that that put me off. So I was going to enter the world of work, which I did. And when I ended up after three months volunteering with Bold Museum and the PAS, got a three month contract with York Museums Trust which started in December 2010, which was a very, very snowy, snowy December. And I remember that well, because my first job with YMT was cataloging and moving all the archaeology out of what is now a derelict store. It's not there anymore. It's been demolished. 
but it didn't have any windows and the roof had caved in in a few places. And so all the snow was coming inside and I, just, <laughs> I was just freezing for the first three months of my professional working life in York. Living the, dream, out, living the dream in archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I didn't, I didn't intend to go into museums archaeology. It was just, it was a step that I just ran with, kept on going with it. <laughs> Still work for that company now, which is, um, which is, which is, which is quite good. I came back to the PhD idea after three or four years out. Um, I had, I'd gotten to, into my head that I was going to do some, some more research and. I tried to, I set about starting to publish a bit of what I'd written in my master's thesis. There's a very small section when I talk about a group of six fist and phallus pendants from Roman Catterick, and I wanted to write them up in more detail. So I did, and I got a paper in Britannia eventually, eventually came out in 2015, or I started writing it in 2013. And I'm like, ah, I can do this research. I've proven it to myself. Um, and I was invited by a friend to speak at a... It was probably a track session, actually, way back in 2014, 13, 12, 13, one of them, a very long time ago now, um, in which I spoke about those Jet Medusa pendants. And at that point, uh, it was just after that session that I then met Stu Mackay. And he said, oh, yeah, I'm just starting a PhD on Roman magic at the Open University. Have you thought about that? And I went, no, and didn't know they did that. That sounds very interesting. And Stuart and I sort of started started on some similar paths together. And so he was doing his PhD. Then I organized a conference session um, specifically on ancient magic. And Stuart came to talk to us, talk at it. And I was talking at it. And kind of from that point, we sat down. He said, we, we, we spoke in a lot of detail. And he's like, you should really talk to my supervisors. You know, they'd be interested in hearing from you. Uh, and Ultimately, I ran from there. So it was two of Stuart's PhD supervisors that are two of my three uh, now who I've spoken to originally, thinking, say, just sending them an email saying, I'd be kind of interested in doing this. What do you think? We spent the better part of a year sort of writing the application and, and uh, actually ultimately getting it in. But it worked out all right. It's <laughs> very handily. Um, Stuart Mackay, also from the University of Leicester, so if you were there for Roman its neighbours, um, Stuart might have still been there as a third year at that point, because yeah. he he and I both lived in the same university halls, but didn't really realise this. Oh wow! <laughs> Until fairly recently, it could, uh, me and all, all my friends in our house we stayed in our same house and halls for three years because it was great. The house was above the bar and the dining room. It was it was awesome, uh, you know, in catered halls. <laughs> like, why would we move out? This is brilliant. Yeah, as Stuart moved in in what would be my second year, um, I worked in the bar downstairs, and I'm pretty sure I must have served the man drinks <laughs> in the in the halls bar. But you know, our paths hadn't really weren't really met at that point. Perhaps we should talk to the uh, University of Leicester alumni people <laughs> and say, look how useful <laughs> ancient history and archaeology department has been at the university. Everybody yeah, yeah. doing research in the real world and connecting with each other. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, sort of moving towards the end now, but uh, very quickly, though, I want to touch on about people's ideas for the future, for the discipline and what they'd like to see happen. I mean, just I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot is things like diversity. But in your case, I was quite interested just for you just to say a 
few few quick words on the fact that you're you've been quite active in regards to the women's classical committee the wikipedia editing of pages did you want to say something about that quickly yeah i'd be glad to so the the women's classical committee is 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 a group of people who come together to promote the uh, the the role of women in classics essentially in in the uk uh, they have a, a working group uh, which works on wikipedia to try and help undo the systemic bias that lives within wikipedia um the average wikipedian is white western male well educated pretty pretty much me <laughs> um I, i'd already worked on on wikipedia and when they started their projects uh, got in touch and wanted to try and um to contribute to it so what they do is write wikipedia articles for primarily for female classicists because they're underrepresentation on wikipedia which is consistently in the top 5 websites used in the world uh, you know 7 7 billion people able to read this stuff and if they can't access that information it tells it, it, uh, that that story that they get isn't representative of what is actually going on in the world so they've written as as a group they have they undertake training of new editors and host a monthly editing session when lots of people come together and write pages edit pages and improve the sort of the the presentation of um female classicists uh on on the internet i think that's really important actually it's a really valuable project to be involved with i mean i take absolutely no credit for it I mean, they these are wonderful people who have organized administered this and for 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 over two years now and have done really incredible things i'm just um you know a wikipedia monkey who is contributed some time to writing articles um on their behalf and training other people in some in some for for other wikipedia projects so if people were in, interested in that where would they go to find find out information about it uh if you well you can google women's classical committee uk and look at it through their website if you go on wikipedia and type in women's classical committee uk there is a wikipedia page um that tells you about the group um or you can or the through wcc uh, on wikipedia as well at the bottom of it there is a link to the wiki the women's castle committee wikipedia project click on that then that's sort of the home page for for everything i've got up on the computer now this month there has been 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 new articles that have been created or improved on female classicists by that group um which is great there's hundreds of articles been added it's a really valuable project to be involved with that will fundamentally make our society very slightly better in a very specific way and it's really great that they that 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 WCC can be organized and has been able to sort of mobilize people to be able to do this because it's it actually matters it genuinely will make a very small difference to this very specific part of the world that that we're that we're all interested in that's kind of what wikipedia is about you know people if you're interested in something why not write about it because you are the specialist in that area you know you've got the skills to be able to do it um also very active on twitter hashtag #wcc is usually how uh we and they communicate brilliant i mean as you say i think you know no matter how minor those things might seem like you no know, editing a page or something it's all those little changes that build up into big changes that really bring about like the major change but it's those kind of like little blocks in the wall almost those little bricks in the wall that really build it up absolutely greater than the sum of its parts um one of their organizers uh, victoria lenards 
has been publishing some articles about it. So there's articles in the Times Higher Education and in um, and in the Guardian as well, just highlighting this issue and trying to say, look, we've got together and we've tried to help a little bit. There's plenty more work to do, so come and get involved. Brilliant. And also as well, just on another quick note, you mentioned it earlier, but you've got your track session coming up in a in a couple of months time do you want to just very quickly sell what, what that's all about so i am a co-organizer of the session on sacred spaces decoration of space for ritual purposes with carl brain who's recently got her phd from the university of leicester uh, <laughs> of course <laughs> of course uh, carla invited me along because it was, it was her idea initially to do a session about how we can think about spaces as being usable for ritual purposes, which we wouldn't automatically think that they can be done so because we could because you could change them through adding materials, through decorating them, through doing uh, certain specific things in those spaces. So that we're thinking about non-normative spaces for ritual purposes. Um, broadly, we're dividing it between um, religion and magic. Uh, there are five, hopefully there's going to be six people who are going to talk at it. and. Yeah, yeah, you know, gonna gonna change the world in <laughs> three hours. Um, trying to promote this area of of archaeology, it really ties into some of the things I'm interested in. Um, you know, ritual process, ephemerality, magical practices, and how they uh, and there's a sort of their ubiquity that exists in the ancient world. My paper is gonna is called Flower Power, so I'm talking about the role of plants and flowers in magical rituals. Um, so, spoilers. <laughs> there will be. I'll be bringing something along. <laughs> and some good gifts. I have no doubt as well. I will endeavour just for you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> you have a lot of expectations to live up to now. Yeah. And so then, I mean, yeah. Just just at the end, if people want to find you online, you say you've got your you've got your blog at romanmagic.wordpress.com. You're active on Twitter as well, aren't you? Yeah, at Adam Archaeology. And anything else at all you want to quickly sell? Is that I think I've probably plugged myself enough, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's quite good. I think we've, we've hit all the major bases. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant. Right, thanks a lot. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies, who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.